Earlier this week, a family in Colorado had to endure a real difficult time. Actually, it's one of the most distressing things a parent could possibly go through, I would imagine, and that is the fact that their 10-year-old daughter went missing. So what happened was the night before, there was a big argument, and the daughter was sent to her room, and most kids will go to their room and do a really, really good job of sulking and pouting. She decided, though, unlike many others, that she was going to leave, and so somehow she managed to get out of the home undetected. That's, it's hard to know exactly what happened. The article I read anyway didn't have all the details, but at some point she hid in a car that belonged to a good friend of theirs, and it's hard to know if the car moved at some point in the night or if she got out and walked away. Uh, but either way, she was gone all night, and finally at 7 o'clock the next morning, she knocked on the door of a random house and told the stranger that answered that she was hungry and she was lost. The owner of the home called the police right away, and they came, and he uh, and his family made her breakfast. She was 27 miles from home. Pretty good distance for a 10-year-old to make in one night. Cold, she was tired, she was hungry, obviously pretty scared, but thankfully she was able to be reunited with her family the next morning, and everybody was glad to have her home safe. It suffice to say, the argument that started the whole thing, I don't even think anybody can remember what it was about. But she got home. She was lost, and then she was able to get home. And the reason I bring up the story is because this is exactly what God's work of redemption is all about. His work is to save people like us who have wandered away. For whatever reason, we decided at some point that God running the show was a real pain. So instead of pouting, we said, we're out of here. And we wander away, and I can do much better on my own. I think we've all said that a time or two this morning. And uh, actually, for a while, that's pretty nice. For a while, we love the freedom. We love the independence. We finally can get rid of these silly constraints on uh, our life that God seems to always be saddling us with. And, and then one day, out of nowhere, and I would suggest this comes for every single person, one day, out of nowhere, you wake up and you say, you know what? I'm tired and hungry. Being on my own didn't crack up to be everything I thought it was. And you know, this, what's funny about this, different than the little girl who was lost, we wake up one morning and we discover we're tired and hungry, and this can even happen even though we have everything we could have ever wanted. That's what's so frustrating in the end. We have everything we could have ever dreamed of. The plan has gone off without a hitch, and yet there is still something missing. Something isn't there that we know ought to be there, and we know in the back of our minds, if we're really honest about it, that something only God can give. Wouldn't it be great in that moment when everything is falling apart that we knew God is near? Wouldn't that be great? It'd be great to know you could pick up the phone, and on the other end would be God, and, and He would say, you know what, I know you're lost. I'll be right over to get you. Breakfast is already on the table. Everything's ready. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be fantastic, and actually that's, I don't know if you know this or not, but that actually is what the entire Bible is about, is telling us that that's actually the way things are, that God is telling us, breakfast is on the table, come on back home, I want to be near to you. But nonetheless, we ask this question, how is God near? How could God be near? He seems distant. I mean, it's just a fact for many of us, sometimes, if not often, how could God possibly be near? I know what the Bible says, but, but nonetheless, He seems distant. 
How could God possibly be near? He's not distant. I am. I'm distant from Him on purpose. How could God be near? I've done so many things I know He wouldn't like. How could God be near? Does He even really hear me? Is He really concerned with what's going on in my life? How is God near? The Bible says God is near, and I think as people we need to understand this, and actually I personally think it's, it's very, very important that we answer this question, how is God near? The Bible says God is near and, and is near through the work of Christ, and the question is how do we understand this? How do we experience this nearness of God. His, his nearness in our life is accomplished, in fact, despite our broken efforts to try and find Him. Think about this in your own life. How have you tried to find and get to God? How have you tried to seek out and, and have a relationship with God? God is near in spite of our best efforts, I would suggest. I want to give you two ideas of two ways we try to draw near to God, and I've drawn them out of our passage this morning. If you'll Maybe just take a look at verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, if you happen to still be there in your Bible. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And we'll get to that in a minute. So here in the middle of verses 11 and 12, he makes this phrase. Remember, you were separated from Christ. And on either side of this phrase, he gives two reasons why that separation has occurred. And I want to point these reasons out. They're ways in which we often seek to know God, but we discover they're actually the opposite. So what's the first way we generally try to get to know God, draw near to God? Any ideas? You don't have to shout them out if you don't want. Here's the first one. We try to appease God. We try to appease God. We don't, may not know much about him from his Bible, but we do know this. The one thing that rings true in our heart, God demands a virgin to be thrown into a volcano. I mean, it doesn't make any sense on the face of it, but some part of that for something rings true. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, he needs a sacrifice. So we seek to appease God. What do we call this when we seek to live a life to appease God? There's a real fancy word for it. It's called religion. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were separated from Christ. A couple of terms here. He used a couple of terms. He used the terms Gentile. For, for at that time, what they, he was saying is those who are not Jewish, anyone who is not Jewish was referred by the Jews as Gentiles. What about uncircumcision? What does that mean? He's another way of referring to the Gentiles, the way Jews would refer to the Gentiles, those who are uncircumcised. Circumcision was a ritual which was given to the people of Israel way back in Genesis to a guy named Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham that Abraham would have a whole ton of kids and that God would bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And to mark the promise of God in Abraham's descendants, God gave them circumcision. He said, because my blessing on the world will come through your children, every male in Israel should be circumcised to demonstrate I have made you a promise. So circumcision was a sign that God was going to use the people of Israel to fulfill his promise to Abraham, which was going to bless the entire world. Circumcision never did anything spiritual. 
ever. There was not a single time that a person got circumcised and all of a sudden their life turned around and they got a new job and a new car. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant made by who? Abraham? No, Abraham's promises weren't worth anything. Read Genesis. It was a sign that God had made a promise to His people. They were to bear on their bodies as an act of worship. God has made a promise to us, and He will fulfill His promise because we think He is that great. So this is what religion does. This is what religion is really good at. Taking something that is merely a sign intended to show God's goodness and turn it into something that is spiritual when it's not. Religion tries to take something physical and say it accomplishes something spiritual. Did circumcision accomplish anything spiritual? No. Only God's promises can accomplish anything spiritual. What religion does is it sneaks in and says, no, no, no. If you get circumcised, good Jewish man, all things will go good for you. Religion always takes those things which are just an outward expression of devotion to God and seeks to show somehow that by doing something physical, by doing something devoted, I can make God do something. Religion says if I give money, God's going to give me a bunch of money back. Religion says if I do something good for other people, God's going to do good stuff for me. Religion says if I'm nice to people, God will be nice to me. I figured out what religion it is. It's called karma. All of a sudden, religion sounds like karma, doesn't it? And this is what religion does. It takes something that should be an act of worship that says, God is awesome. It says, no, 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 you've got to do this. Otherwise, God is going to wallop you upside the head. Circumcision as an act of religion was an effort by uh, those who didn't really have a relationship with God to try and obligate individuals to do something to earn God's favor Look with me at Romans chapter 2, verse 29, or you can just listen as I read it. This is what the Apostle Paul had to say about, about circumcision in the book of Romans, beginning in verse 28. A Jew who is merely one outwardly... I should, let me begin reading again so I can actually read the English. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Wait, what did he just say? Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Some of you are saying, obviously, Paul would not have been a good physician. Listen to what his point is. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, or not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is saying here, Circumcision was intended to say, I believe God's promises are true. And Paul is saying, the most important part of that act of worship is not whether or not your body is made to display that, but whether or not your heart believes it. He is saying, the, the person who believes in the promises of God, their heart is circumcised, is set apart unto God because the person says, I trust God's promises. I trust the promises are good, and I trust that He can keep them. He reiterates this over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul basically is saying, listen, by having faith in the finished work of Christ, the law code is now nailed to the cross. It's done. Well, but, but God says I need to do A, B, C, and D. And, and, the, and what Christ is saying is I did all of that for you. You do not need to appease God. You do not need to try and get God to stop being angry because in in faith we can receive the righteousness that Christ provides. Religion takes an act of worship and says, no, no, if you don't do the good things, God is not going to like you. If you don't get circumcised, God won't like you. If you don't uh, attend church every week, God's not going to like you. You don't give a certain amount of money away every year. God's not going to like you. If you don't read your Bible, uh, God's not going to like you. If you don't memorize large portions of Scripture, uh, God's gonna, not going to like you. If your children don't turn out perfect, God's not going to like you. And, the, and Paul is saying, what, what, what just happened? The law code was nailed to the cross. We don't have to appease God. We don't have to throw the virgin into the volcano. Christ died on the cross. He has appeased all of the justice God might ever demand. Anything we might do is not an act of religion to appease God. Everything we might ever do from that on time forward is an act of worship saying, God, you're amazing. I cannot believe you forgave me. There's a story in Luke chapter 18 about a ruler who came to Jesus. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. A ruler came to Jesus and asked him this question. Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good religious question, a question that every person on planet Earth has asked at some point. God, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's a religious question. What does God require of me? How is he to be appeased? And Jesus said to him this. I'm going to skip a few verses. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witnesses, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Wow, pretty substantial list. Are you counting up which ones you're able to do? And the ruler replied to Jesus, all of these I've kept from my youth. This is the most incredible part of the story. Do you know what's incredible about this story? Jesus doesn't correct him. I think Jesus would have. Jesus doesn't correct him because that's not the point. He doesn't say, no, 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 remember December 27th? Oh, boy. Then we got two out of three on that one, buddy. See, he doesn't because he doesn't want to play that game because it doesn't matter. So Jesus takes a laser beam and aims it directly at the actual issue. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the ruler heard these things, he became very sad because he was very, very, very rich. This guy had all the religion in the world. He dotted every I, 
crossed every T. He had been flawless. He had been perfect. And he loved his money more than he loved God. And Jesus is saying, what good is your religion going to do? God is standing right in front of you, and you'd rather keep your dollar bills. Congratulations on being an A-plus religion student. Jesus diagnosed exactly what the problem was, which is this. You can follow this world and have your heart devote, I should say this, you can follow the rules and still have a heart that does not love God. And that was precisely the ruler's problems. Jesus was not saying to get to heaven, you've got to sell all your stuff. Jesus was using his question to make sure he understood, you love your money more than God. So don't come at me with your religion. And we all know it. We all know what the issue is. What's crazy about this rich young ruler, for the rest of his life would be my guess, only two people on planet earth knew that he wasn't saved. Jesus and him. Because he would have been, he would have been an all-star. If there was a building on a church to name after him, he would have been named after him. I mean, this guy had it dialed in. And his heart wanted nothing to do with God. Religion seeks to appease God. And why do we need to appease God? Because all of us have in our history things that we know God needs to be appeased about. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And what we want to do is we just want to make sure that we can pay God back for the stuff we did wrong. And religion works really great because what it allows us to do is hold on to some of our favorite pet sins and then we can get a little religion over here and say, hey, they cancel out, right? So we're square. So God, you get what you want a guy who never murders or commits adultery or honors his parents, and on the, I can get a little uh, what I meant to on the side. So we're, we're square, right? And God says, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. You must think I'm the fairy godmother. I am God of the universe. I want everything. God wants our whole heart, our whole life, because he knows what's good for us. Religion. Ask this question, how do I appease God. And for the Gentiles, they couldn't do it because they were uncircumcised. If you want to think about ways to get to God between these two ways, I want to make it, I want you to think about kind of like an airplane. An airplane has how many wings? At least two. Okay, and I'm not an aerospace engineer, but I'm pretty sure on that one. So religion is one of those wings. You want to get to God? Religion's usually going to be on one side of the airplane. What's going to be on the other side? On one side, we ask, how do I appease God? On the other side of the airplane is this. How do I impress God? So religion says, how do I appease God? Pedigree says, how do I impress God? Look with me again at Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul here is describing the relationship Israel had with God. It was a special relationship in this, that God made himself known to the people of Israel and made known to the people of Israel he was going to use them to bring the Messiah so that all who would trust in the Messiah could be saved. And so Israel had a privileged position in that they had received from God this revelation. God was going to use them to bring the Messiah. So, Paul then says to the Gentiles who he's writing to, you have some disadvantages. You weren't from Israel, so you are strangers to the promises. These are unusual to you. 
the covenants were made known to you. You didn't know about the promise to Abraham and the promise uh, to Moses and the promise to David. So you aren't, don't come from a privileged position of knowing what God's mission is through the Messiah to save sinners. He says, uh, you don't have any hope outside of God because you don't have this privileged position of being a part of the community of Israel. In fact, he says, you're without God in the whole world. He says of the Gentiles, your religious pedigree is horrible. It's awful. You have no way to impress, impress God. Now, the mistake that religious people could make or that a Jewish people were making at this time was because of privileged status, I therefore have a privileged relationship with God. But we have to understand this about pedigree or about impressing God. Privileged status is not the same as spiritual relationship with God. Just because I am Jewish, one might say, does not mean, therefore, I have a significant or special relationship with God. Just because I grew up in the church, just because I grew up with Christian parents, just whatever our, we think our impressive pedigree is, a, a impressive pedigree does not mean we immediately or necessarily have spiritual vitality. Seeking to have an impressive religion, an impressive spiritual life, or, or approaching my relationship with God by saying, how do I impress God? It aims to make sure that my life is respectable. A person who wants to know God because they have an impressive uh, heritage of faith or ped pedigree in their life would say this, I know God saves sinners, and I'm a sinner, and usually we say it very humbly, I'm a sinner. I stole my buddy's pencil in second grade. I have carried that with me. The pencil? No. <laughs> and, so, and so what we want to do is, 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 is of having a religious pedigree, an impressive religious heritage, is to make sure the sins we confess are just very, very respectable. Like the, in, the applicant for the job interview, and the interviewer asked him, what is your greatest weakness? What's the correct answer to that question? You know, I just work too much. I, I can't seem to stop. I just work so hard. I can't stop. I sacrifice my family for my job. I, I wish it wasn't that way. And this is how we approach when we want to have this impressive religious resume. I neglect my family just because I serve at the church so much. Lord, have mercy on my soul. We want to have a history of, of sin in our life that is not shameful. What's important to those of us who want a pedigree and to impress God and others is that our spiritual reputation, our spiritual history, and our spiritual influence remains intact because the way we know God is to impress God, and the way to impress God is to have a long track record of impressive religious accomplishments, and those times when I have a religious failure, I want to make sure they're just really respectable religious failures, and when I really blow it, what's the trick there? Keep it a secret. Make sure no one knows, certainly God can be fooled. Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about his religious pedigree, his impressive religious resume, and I just want to read it to you. Philippians 3 verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
What kinds of horrible, horrible people is he talking about here? Religious people. You'll have to read the other passages. He's talking about uh, people who force others, uh, especially into the religious ritual of circumcision, as an act of devotion to God. And he's saying, what are you talking about? God's not impressed by your religious resume. Verse 3. We, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. How much confidence in the flesh? No confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's pedigree, spiritually and religiously, in his mind, was a liability. Paul's religious pedigree was a spiritual liability. He didn't, seek it, he didn't merely just say, well, you know, it kind of gets in the way and it distracts me from real life in God. He says, no, my, my religious pedigree, my efforts in my past to put confidence in my ability to behave well is a liability in knowing God. A life of seeking to impress God is actually a spiritual liability in actually knowing God. I want to let you in on a little bit of a secret. God is amazing. God is amazing. If, even in the back of your mind, you'd never say it out loud because it would sound silly, if in the back of our mind even, we think we can impress God, then He's really lame. Really, that we could impress Him. I mean, I, I mean, that's almost it. If we could somehow do something so amazing that God, well, gee, I didn't see that coming. That's impressive. Then he must be the, the smallest God imaginable. But because he is so amazing, we can already do away with this idea of impressing him. Because he is the biggest, awesomest God, because he's the only one. What this means, since God can't be impressed, is this. The one who has the advantage in truly knowing God is the outsider, not the insider. That's what Paul was saying. The advantage of knowing God is not the religious insider, because the religious insider, they have the liability of, they, in the back of their mind, they want to impress God and everybody around them. And what Paul says, the, the advantage of knowing God is the outsider who's struggling with their own shame, he's struggling with their own sin history, or struggling with their own memories. The one who's seeking to impress God is going to seek to hide their shame, hide their sin. They're going to seek to just demonstrate their accomplishments to God and others. And the one who knows they can't hide their stuff, they have the advantage because all they can do is fall down on their face and say, oh God, save me for I have sinned. One last thing on this pedigree. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we have a pedigree of Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is how Matthew chapter 1 begins. 
I just want to point out one or two people in Jesus impressive pedigree. Verse 10 of Matthew chapter 1, we see this guy. Hezekiah was the father of who? Manasseh. I would say Manasseh was evil, but that would insult evil people. I mean, this dude was so bad, the evil people in Israel said, oh, you didn't. Really? Manasseh? You're the king of Judah. I mean, I don't even want to say it because there are kids in the room. I mean, he was just awful. He's listed here as a one in the line of Christ. Look at verse 3. Another horrible, horrible story. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by who? Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Why was Tamar pregnant by, Perez, by Judah? Because her husband died, and she was waiting for Judah to give her one of his sons when he grew up, but Judah decided not to. So she tricked him, posing as a prostitute, and he paid Tamar to sleep with her, and she became pregnant. When he discovered she was pregnant, he called for her execution. And it wasn't until she presented items he had left behind in her room that he finally realized he was busted, and he finally agreed, she is more righteous than I. And her children, from this horrible, horrible event of victimization, are in the line of Christ. Look with me at verse 6. Salmon was the father of Boaz, Boaz by Oh, I read ahead. I meant verse 6. We'll get to Rahab later. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, of course, was the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband who was murdered by David. We don't have time to get into Rehoboam, but that guy was an idiot. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. There's Jesus' pedigree. Are you looking for impressive religious pedigree? Jesus doesn't have one. He's got a long history of brokenness in his uh, human lineage, at least. What are the two ways we try to get to God? One wing is religion. How do I appease God? The other wing is pedigree. How do I impress God, either with my accomplishments or my long religious uh, pedigree, and what we do is we flap these two wings. It's hard. To, I know airplane wings don't flap. <laughs> appease God, impress God, appease God, impress God, and we do this over and over. I'm describing many of your Christian life, and it's exhausting. Agreed or disagree? This is how many of us live our Christian life. Appease God, impress God, appease God, impress God, and we can't pull it off, so at least I'll make sure my friends don't know I'm not pulling it off. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 is saying, Gentiles, man, don't, get, don't do it. That's not how you get to God. How do we draw near to God? Look at Ephesians 2 verse 13. Let me read Ephesians 2 verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus draws us near. Jesus answers this question, not how do I get to God, 
Jesus answers this question, what is God doing to get to me? And by his blood, God draws us near to him. I want to show you an example of this from the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 2. Another woman in the lineage of Christ was Rahab. Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 had two visitors from the people of Israel. People of Israel were invading Canaan, and they were going to destroy the city of Jericho where Rahab lived. Rahab had a home on the wall. Rahab's job was a prostitute. The spies came into the city, and they hid in Rahab's home. She told a couple of lies. She got uh, the uh, police of Jericho off the scent, and the men, the two spies, hid in Rahab's home to hide from the people of Jericho who would have sought to imprison them. So Rahab hides the spies, and it says this in verse 11 of Joshua chapter 2. This is Rahab's words. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, how you devoted them to destruction, is what Rahab is telling the spies. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there's no spirit left in any man because of you. Listen to this. This is Rahab. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I believe in your God, was Rahab. She wasn't afraid of dying in a city invasion. She discovered who God is. And verse 18, she asks them, the spies, to make sure that she is delivered uh, from the coming invasion because she trusted in their God. And this is what the spies told her. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You'll gather into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your whole household. If anyone leaves your home, they're dead. So they tell Rahab in her home in Jericho, I want you to have your home marked with the mark of redemption. You need to have the scarlet cord of redemption hung over your window in the very same... They didn't say this. This is what they meant. In the very same way that when we were in Egypt, we marked our doorways with the blood of a lamb that the angel of death might pass over our homes. Rahab, Gentile, prostitute, God will pass over you. Because you will have your home marked with the mark of redemption, the scarlet cord of redemption. Your home now is delivered from the judgment that's coming onto Jericho. If anyone is in your home, they will be redeemed. Anyone is outside of your home, they will be what? Judged. You know, there's one other place the scarlet cord is mentioned in the Bible. Do you know where it is? About three months later, this is Genesis chapter 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. She is pregnant. Judah said, bring her out, let's burn her. What an idiot. I mean that in the nicest way possible. Proved that she, he was the father and he relented and the babies were coming. This is verse 27 of Genesis 38. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one of the twins put out a hand. I know that's weird. It happens. The midwife took and tied what? Scarlet thread on his hand. This one came out first. He drew his hand back in, and the babies were born. Perez and Zerah were born. 
the scarlet cord around his wrist. So here you have two women in Christ's genealogy, two women who are in that line of redemption, the scarlet cord of redemption, that God is going to save sinners from their sin. And he says, I'm not worried about your religion. I'm not worried about your pedigree. I will draw you near to me on my terms because I am a God who saves. Rahab and Tamar were not religiously impressive. Rahab and Tamar were both shamefully victimized. And Christ says to both, I will draw you near. I will have you near me. Let me point out one other woman, this time in Luke chapter 7. Jesus was invited over to a Pharisee's house to have dinner with him. And Jesus sat down at that Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And all of a sudden, a woman of the city came up, uh, and it turns out she was known to be a sinner. I don't know what that means. She brought with her an alabaster flask, and standing behind Jesus, it would have been very unusual today, uh, she was weeping at his feet, and uh, her tears were getting on his feet. So she was then taking her hair and cleaning his feet, and then she was kissing his feet, and then she was anointing his feet with the alabaster perfume, and the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what's this, do you know what kind of woman this is? And Jesus says this to his host, you know what, Simon, I came into my house, you didn't even offer to take my sandals off. I came into my house, you didn't even offer me a basin of water to wash my own feet. And yet this woman has not stopped cleansing my feet with her own tears and perfuming them with her own perfume since the moment I arrived. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus in Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, we should stop there. Jesus says to this woman, your sins are many. Two people have called her a sinner in this moment. The Pharisee has called her a sinner, and Jesus has said to her, your sins are many. Even in just reading it and not being there and hearing it, you can tell they're different, can't you? Those are two very different things. Two people saying the exact same thing, one of them in disdain and hatred, and the other one out of deep love and affection. And Jesus says, your sins are many. I don't call a spade a spade. They're forgiven. Christ draws her near in perfection, in holiness, in affection, and tenderness, and grace, And forgiveness, he draws her to himself because of his love and affection for her. What's our state when God doesn't, when we haven't, in our, I should say, what's our state in our natural uh, position? That's this, we're far off. But now in Christ Jesus, this is back in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I just want you to think about it for a minute as we uh, close. I want you to pick your favorite one between religion, appeasing God, and pedigree, impressing God. Everybody's got their favorite. Some people are pretty good at the religion thing, and some people are really good at the impressive accomplishments thing. You got to pick which one of those is your favorite. One of them is. 
maybe you got both. Maybe you're just one of those lucky few who's just really good at both being religious and impressive. We just need to understand as we think about this, all that's going to lead to us crashing and burning. That plane cannot stay in the air. We cannot get to God by appeasing him. We cannot get to God by impressing him. We've seen that in Tamar. We see that in Rahab. And we see that at the woman who blessed and worshipped Christ. In religion, we want to hide our sin or minimize our sin with our impressiveness to try seek and impress God. We want to hide our shame and our guilt. In both, we want to compare ourselves with others, and we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be better than the guy next to me. Jesus reaches down past all the impressive people and all the religious people, and I don't mean to be rude, but this is what he does. He picks up the losers. He, he picks those of us that we can't get our act together. I try to be religious, but I'm horrible at it. I try to be impressive, but I'm not that good at it. And Jesus picks up those who are broken and draws them near with his own hand. How is God near? Jesus draws us near. When we're lost, when we're cold, when we're hungry, when we cry out to God, we're wondering, how in the world am I going to get home? How do I get near to God? The answer is Jesus draws us near. He draws us, in fact, to himself. You may wonder, if this is the case, why would, why would anybody refuse him? Why would anybody not want to turn to God? If, if he is drawing us near by his, by his own grace and kindness, why would anybody turn him away? And just real quickly, I want us to think again about Rahab and Jericho uh, to understand why this happens. Remember, everyone in Rahab's house is safe from the coming judgment. Remember? You got that? Everybody in Rahab's house is safe because of the scarlet cord that she has hung on the window. We should understand because of God and their belief in what God is doing. It's not merely the scarlet cord. So why would somebody in Jericho proper, why would they go to Rahab's house? Why would they say, hey, everybody in Rahab's house is safe? If I was walking down the streets of Jericho, everybody said, everybody in Rahab's house is safe, I'd say, the only reason I would go there is if I actually believed Jericho was going to be destroyed. If I understood and believed that all of the safety and significance and pleasure and wealth and uh, provision of Jericho was going to go away, I would run to Rahab's house. But why would I go to Rahab's house if I have no reason to believe Jericho is going to fall? Have you seen, the walls are very thick. The army is very powerful. There's food that would last for years. Why would I go to Rahab's house? The walls are thick. This is a safe place to be. So here's the point. We don't respond to God's call in our life. We don't respond to God's drawing of himself, or I should say drawing of us to himself, because even though we're lost and we're cold and we're away from home, we feel warm and well-fed. We feel like everything's okay. And I don't, we feel like it's never going to change. What could it possibly change? Everything in Jericho seems okay. Everything seems fine. We know in the back of our mind it's not okay, but everything seems okay. And frankly, to leave everything and go up to Rahab's house, that seems a little extreme, doesn't it? I mean, we all understand what Rahab did for a job, right? I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit extreme to save yourself, run up to Rahab's house? Like, really? Wouldn't it be better if God came to Jericho? 
I know it seems silly, right? Wouldn't it be better if, if I could just keep living my life in Jericho? I don't have to go up to Rahab's house. She can do her thing. Go Rahab. And how about if God joins me here in my life? How about if God will fill in the cracks of discontentment I feel in my life? That'll work out great. God gets what he wants. He gets to do the God thing. And I get to keep my life. God will never do that because he loves us too much to leave us out in the cold. He loves us too much to leave us hungry and lost even though we don't feel it. So here's the difficult part. Rahab knew, but Jericho didn't know. Finding God is not an effort to get God to bless the life I have. Finding God is God's work to give us a brand new life. It's really important for us to think about as Christians because Christians, we tend to lead our Christian life as nothing more than a religious exercise to try and gain God's blessing on this life that we designed. I put my life together. It seems to be working. Now, what are the religious levers that I got to pull to get God to show up and pour out God dust on it? God is good, and God is kind, and by his grace we trust him, that he will take us from our life of our own design, and he's going to weave the scarlet cord of our life into a much grander story, which isn't about us, it's all about Jesus. He's calling us home, and he's calling us to something better. Might I suggest it would be worth our time to take a little bit of time in our life sometime this week, and to seek the Lord and pray. What are those vestiges of Jericho's walls in our life? And what I mean by it, what are those areas of our life where we want God to join us where we are? And we know he's calling us to something different. What are those sins in my life that I'm tolerating? Because, listen, I do enough good for God, I get, I get to keep these little things. Maybe it's time to seek God and pray, walk away from our stuff and go up to the house of Rahab. Maybe either as a Christian or somebody who's not a Christian, you have blown it really bad. I know it's none of you. It's people who couldn't come today. I mean, you have blown it big time. What kind of, blow, what kind of bad mess up? The kind of mess up where if we knew about it, we wouldn't want you here kind of thing. Like if they knew. So somehow, sometimes in this shame that we carry, we're convinced that if God was going to let us into heaven, he would only do so because he's required to by his own truth, but he doesn't really want to. Like, oh, you believed in Jesus, I have to let you in heaven, but if I had my way, I wouldn't let you. Like somehow God is begrudgingly accepting us, begrudgingly letting us into his household through faith, even though we know he wouldn't want us if he could have his way. The overwhelming sense of shame sometimes can crush us. And again, I just want to draw your attention back to Rahab's home for just a minute. When you look around the house in a home like Rahab's, for those of us who have really blown it, what do you see? You see people just like you. You see people who showed up in this place because the scarlet cord is all you have because it's so bad. You know you have nothing to offer God, and when you look around the room in a place like Rahab's home, you see a lot of people with stories just like your own clinging to the redemptive work of Christ in that scarlet cord. Guess who else is in Rahab's house? Well, Jesus is there, and he walks over to you, and he says this to you, your sins are like many, like home run kind of many, 
I know about every single one of your sins. Every single one. And they're forgiven. Who forgives sins like this? He's the end of that scarlet cord. It's, it's the end of that cord of redemption that, that weaves its way all the way through the scripture and ends at Christ. He's the one who draws his near. He is the one who shed his blood on the cross. And he is the one who has the power to raise the dead. Why not trust him? Would you trust him and let him draw you near? Would you walk away from your need to try and appease him or to try and impress him and just let Jesus handle all the appeasing and impressing? In Christ, we don't have to do any of that. We just get to enjoy God because he draws us near to God himself.